All right. Good morning. How are we, family? Good, good. Man, it's great to be here with you all this morning. Uh, I'm excited to continue in Ephesians here, and we have a ton to cover, and so I want to kind of dive right in. So um, in our text so far, what Paul has been doing in the book of Ephesians is he's been laying out for us, what does it look like to live out the gospel? How do we take the reality of who we are in Christ and play that into practical, personal situations? And so in chapters one through three, what Paul was doing was kind of laying out that gospel for us. Man, what do we believe? Why do we believe it? Who is Jesus? What does that mean for us if we trust in Christ? And then in chapters four through six, what he's doing is he's helping us to see how that gospel plays out practically. And so, for example, in chapter four, we see how the gospel plays out in the church, right? Paul starts off, the gospel plays out in beautiful ways amongst the church as we are patient, bear with one another, maintain unity as we use our gifts to build others up. Paul also talks about how the gospel plays out in our own individual lives. What does it look like to take off the old and to put on to new, to look more like Jesus? And so Paul has been believing and and helping us understand understand, hey, if you implement the gospel, then this will radically change your life and the world around us. And so this is a very gospel-centric letter. And Paul now switches from the church and us as individuals and begins to bring the gospel into households. And he starts off today in marriage. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have Bibles, the ushers are actually gonna come forward right now. And if you would just slip up your hand, they would love to give you a Bible. If you do not have a Bible, man, would you please, t- uh, please take and keep that? That's our gift to you. We want you to have the word, be able to see it every week. You could take this link, put it right into your browser. You could follow along that way. Uh, that is a great way for you to be able to track with what's happening. And then uh, if you can also have the version app underneath the events section, type in the Well Austin, you can follow along that way as well. We say this every week, because we mean it, friends. We want your eyes on the word. And I firmly and fully believe that there are times that the Holy Spirit will begin to draw out something in the text that's not even really being preached about, but that the Holy Spirit wants your mind to be able to see. And a lot of times the scripture, as the word is taught, kind of becomes like braille in a lot of ways. It almost raises up off the page where you can feel it. And so we want your eyes on the word because we really believe that, man, God speaks to us through his word. This is where the power of God dwells as we submit to it. And so We want you to see the scriptures along with us. Amen? Okay. um, I'm going to read this whole passage today uh, and kind of get a big overlay of where we are going. I want to lay out a couple of things before we actually dive in and chop it up, but I want us to see this passage at large. And so Ephesians chapter 5 is where we are at, and we're going to pick it up here in verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves uh, his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is that make people want to leave your church passage. We're diving right into it, all right? We ready? So let me start off by saying two things real quick, okay? First of all, uh, if you assert your own definition into Scripture, then you will be unable to extrapolate the beauty of what the text actually lays out for us. You tracking with that? And so uh, you have to let Scripture define what it is saying, not you bring your definition to Scripture and then begin to make it say something that is not same, okay? And so one of the first things I want to do today is I want to reorient some of our definitions because it will help us be able to see some of the beauty of this passage. And so, ladies, I know that this text tells you the second word in this text is to do something that is a cuss word in our culture, right? And it also happens to start with an S. And so I understand, all right, that this is a a hard passage because of that, uh, but imposing what you think it means onto it will not allow you to unpack the reality of what God actually has. And so, one, we have to reorient our definition, okay? In fact, the very first time that uh, I ever preached this message on Ephesians 5, after I got done reading, we had three girls literally stand up and walk out the room, okay? Walk out is actually a bad phrase. They stormed out the room, and they actually cussed at me. Like, this looks like a cuss word. They actually did it with their eyes, right? And it was just, you know, I'm not going to listen to this. And I would say that I understand some of the past pain, the ways people have used this in the past, but if you are able to reorient what it's actually saying and not insert what you think it's saying, then I would argue that this is actually a wildly beautiful passage, and that if this is played out, it actually creates for you what your heart craves, longs for and desires. And so I think that by the end of it, we would say yes and amen. I actually want to do this. I want to see this played out. And if we see the reality of what it's saying. So one, you cannot insert your own definition, okay? And so let's kind of re uh, uh, cast that aside. Let's let scripture define for us what it's saying. And then hopefully we can reapply what's happening here, okay? Second of all, uh, I would say that if your idea of marriage is what can this other person give to me, then this whole passage is going to literally make 0% sense. And I would say that 98% of us enter into marriage thinking like that. What can this other person give to me? And so if you're single right now, you begin to think about, hey, what can my future boyfriend, girlfriend, what can they give to me? Are they, uh, uh, you know, worthy? Do they make me feel loved? Do they uh, make me feel fulfilled? Do they make me emotionally happy? And you begin to think about entering into marriage as a ways by which to uh, uh, please, satisfy, promote, fulfill you. If you are dating, that's what you're thinking about in your boyfriend or girlfriend. You're looking and you're going, man, do they fulfill this, right? If you're married, you know better than to do that. And yet you do it anyway, right? You still begin to think, hey, what does this person give to me? And so uh, if you enter into marriage thinking it's about you, this is going to make 0% sense. Let me say something over and over and over again that helps set us in the right position. The Bible is not you-centered. It is others-centered, And marriage is not an exception from that rule, okay? Marriage is not a means by which you are filled, but it's a means by which you get the opportunity to help fill somebody else. I get no amens on that one? 
All right, that's how we are this morning, okay? Hey, listen, this is hard, right? This is hard, but this is the reality. Marriage is not self-serving. It is not what can I get out of it. It is other-serving. It's about what can I give to somebody else in the midst of it. And so because of this, most of what we read about in marriage in the scripture actually starts to grate against our flesh in some ways because it is asking us to die to ourselves over and over and over again. It is the death of us and the life to somebody else. And so we will feel the pain of the grading against our natural inclination to look after oneself. But the scriptures will say, no, 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 you're supposed to look after others. And marriage is actually one of the most beautiful ways by which you can do that as you die for your spouse. In fact, even in this text, the death of you does not promise a return from your spouse. It just says you die to yourself, right? And so marriage is not uh, uh, you seeking. It is truly others seeking in a lot of ways, right? This just sounds awesome. What a great way to start a sermon, right? It's like every Hollywood romance movie you've ever seen, right? No, not at all. We don't live in a culture that's like that, right? It is about us. What can I get? The Bible recognizes, though, that marriage in and of itself is a selfless act. It's selfless. It's not self-seeking. It's giving to someone else to bless, to honor, to cherish, to nourish, to enrich, to promote, to highlight, to elevate to the best of your ability the realities of who you think they can become in Christ and to give yourself fully that that reality might be true for them. That's why marriage is such a great representation of the gospel because that's what the gospel is. Jesus seeing what you could become and laying down his life, even though you are totally unworthy of it, so that he may make you what he knows you could could become, and on and on and on, right? We see this beautiful picture, okay? But you get the opportunity to play out the gospel so clearly in your marriage. But if you go into marriage with the idea or the mindset that it's about you, then you are going to be disappointed, friends. In fact, I would argue that's why so many marriages end in divorce is because you're looking for somebody to satisfy something that only the Lord himself can satisfy, but you're looking and you're self-seeking. You're not thinking about how can I give to the other person, okay? And now we may say, well, wait a minute, right? If if this is so self-sacrificial, then why should I even get married? Like, like, what do I get out of it, right? And I would say that's a, that's a really, really fair question, okay? Tim Keller, who's a pastor uh, in New York and an author, He says this, he says, you only discover happiness after each of you has put the happiness of your spouse ahead of your own in a sustained way in response to what Jesus has done for you. Some will ask, if I put the happiness of my spouse ahead of my own needs, then what do I get out of it? The answer is happiness. That is what you get, but a happiness through serving others instead of using them. Shoot, brother, better preach in this joint, right? (laughs) Right? Do you believe, friends, that it is better to give than to receive? That's what the gospel tells us, right? It is better to give than receive. Do you believe that? Because this is what it is applied to in marriage. It is better to give yourself away than to even receive. Do you believe in the realities of the gospel? This is why chapters 1 through 3 have to sink into our heart. Because what Paul is asking us to do here in chapter 5 is the death of ourselves. But if this is true that it is better to give than it is to receive, why? Because as you are giving, you begin to look more and more like Jesus. And as you look more and more like Jesus, you are filled in a Way that your heart was made for, that you crave. There's a, a, a coming aliveness as you look more like God, but we have to understand and believe that first. Because if we believe it's better to receive, then marriage is going to make zero percent sense to us because we're going to be looking to receive. 
And we're going to be looking to receive something that our spouse is unable to give us because it only comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the reality of what Paul is laying out. In fact, if you think about uh, even the gospel call itself, you don't have to turn here, but in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, it'll be on the screen. Jesus says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. If you try to earn your own happiness, save your own life, seek your own vitality, you are going to lose it in the end, he says. But if you give your life away for my sake, for the sake of the gospel, then you will gain it in the end. If this is true in the gospel, why would it not be true in our relationships as well as we play out the gospel? If you seek to gain, save, earn marriage, and you might just lose it in the end. But if you seek to give, serve, sacrifice, lay down for others' sake, then you might just gain it in the end, friends. This is the reality of the gospel. If you are only self-serving, then you will lose your marriage. But if you lay down your life, though, for the sake of the others, as you try to out-honor one another, as Romans 12 would even tell us to do, then you may actually see the beautiful creation that God has intended start to blossom open, and you will see the pictures of God like you have never seen before and come alive in ways that you've never felt before. We have to believe it's better to give than to receive, though. We have to believe the gospel. And so this is why this comes after Paul lays out the gospel over and over again. But this is hard for us. We don't live in a culture that thinks like that. That's why every book title that you see are seven ways to have a better marriage. For who? For you, right? It's self-seeking. You never see a book that says seven ways that your spouse might have a better marriage as you die for them, right? Well, you actually do. It's called Ephesians 5, all right? And so that's the only book that's in there, right? And so you cannot insert your own definition, okay? Rule one, all right? And then also you have to realize that marriage is not self-serving. It's not self-seeking. It's seeking the good of somebody else. And as you begin to apply those two, I think you see this text literally expand in these awesome and beautiful ways. And so ladies, wives, okay, in light of this, what does Scripture highlight is the main way by which you can give yourself to your husband, that you can esteem him as valuable or worthy or honored. It's the dreaded word, right? Submit, dun, 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 right? Uh, Submission has unfortunately been hijacked in our culture to mean something that it never meant in the original language, Submission has also been taken by boyish men who are in man's bodies but actually act like boys, okay, to begin to overlord a woman in a ways that the scripture has never demanded that he do. The scripture tells the man to die for his wife, and instead he lords over his wife. And so submission has been all jacked up. So I get it. There's a a ton of baggage with it. I, I do understand that. I want to tell you that the way people have been using that word is an inappropriate and incorrect way, but the way the scripture uses it is a life-giving and a beautiful way. So let's tackle through it and kind of extrapolate the beauty from it. Beth Moore, who's a prominent women's minister in Houston, and in my opinion, she's a genius, she says this, the Greek word for submit is hupotasso. Hupo means under, and tasso means to place in order. The compound word, hupotasso, means to place under or in an orderly fashion. Paul didn't dislike women. He liked order. He advocated order in the church, order in the government, order in business, and yes, order in the home. Paul regarded husbands and wives as spiritual equals, but with functional differences. That last sentence is very important. Okay, so let me tell you what submission is not, okay? Submission is not obedience, No amens again, right? Submission is not obedience, okay? Notice the text does not say, obey your every husband's wish and command. 
That's not what it's saying there. The Bible doesn't lay out women as lesser in any way or inferior in any way. To submit does not mean to become a doormat, okay? That's not what the text is actually laying out. So because submission is not obedience, that's why the text in chapter or verse 22 can say, submit as unto the Lord. And then in verse 24, in case we didn't get it, it says, submit in everything, in everything, right? If submission equaled obedience, then God would be setting women up for great disaster if that's what that meant. But because submission does not equal obedience, he can say, hey, submit in everything or submit as unto the Lord. In fact, if you look at chapter 6, verse 1, just a couple of verses later, all right, Paul actually does use the word obey. And so both words were in Paul's vocabulary, the word submit and the word obey, and they were very, very different words. In fact, if you look here on the screen, there are two different words here for submit. Both of them have the same root word, which means under, or there's something that's happening here, there's order here. But if you look at the actual verb that's used here, submit and obey, they're wildly different. They're not even the same root word. They're not even in the same picture category or planet. And so there is a total difference between these two words. And so if your husband, say, calls you into sin, then you do not obey, right? That's not what the text is telling you to do. So if I go to Natalie, I'm like, hey, girl, heard you got some gossip. Tell her brother, right? She should not tell me, okay? That should not be what happens. If I go to her and if I say, hey, I'm sick of this Texas heat, go out in the back and do a rain dance and make it rain so that it can, you know, kind of cool down, all right? She should not submit or she should not obey me, right? Like she should probably go out in the backyard and then exit our back gate and run away and tell one of y'all because something snapped in here, okay? <laughs> there's something off in there, right? But there's a difference between the two. Natalie at that moment could actually be submissive to me and still tell me, you're out of your mind, yo, <laughs> right? Both of those realities are true at the same time. Why? Well, we see in Paul's last verse there in verse 33, it says, hey, wives, respect your husbands, it says, right? What are men seeking? Well, respect or honor. This is something that we crave, that we long for. And so wives can actually use the tool of submission as a way by which to create that need that a man has in their heart, right? Let me give you an example of this, of a submissive heart from, from our own marriage. About three years ago, okay, we had an insane grocery budget. And by insane, I mean I took the fact that I am a broke pastor way too far and I strained my wife with it, okay? And so uh, my wife does the grocery shopping in our house, and I gave her what I thought was a very, very generous budget, you know, because when I was a single man, mac and cheese, cereal, and PB&J was a very well-balanced diet, all right? And so I gave her that, and, uh, you know, and, and don't laugh at me here, but uh, I gave her $180, all right, uh, a month, <laughs> a month, not a week, all right? And so we began to kind of lay out, and she was like, man, I'm trying. I'm like, babe, you keep going over in groceries. She's like, I'm really trying, you know, and we kind of go back and forth a little bit. And she began to kind of rebuke me and say, hey, you're way too tight with money, right? Like you are kind of too uh, close-handed with money. It's okay. God's provided for us. We could do this. And then she began to just rebuke me on the issue at large and say, hey, like, just do a little bit of research, you know. Go, go look at what a family of four tends to spend on uh, food. And I was like, most families are greedy, right? We're going to be right, good stewards of our monies. And I'm all prideful, right? And uh, so then she said, well, hey, how about this? Go shopping with me. Go grocery shopping with me. And then we can see. 
And she knew she got me because the brother hates the grocery store, yo. So I was like, whatever, $10,000, do what you want, right? <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, right? But she began to walk with me and literally the whole time was trying to honor me, but yet lead our family because I was not leading our family well and began to help me be able to realize that, man, I am putting her in something that literally is impossible to do. And she began to open up, expand all at the same time, though, trying to respect and make me a better leader, which is what God has called me to be anyway. You tracking with that? And so there's a big difference there, right? Because in the midst of all of it, what she could have just said to me is, look, homie G, you're a flaming moron. We can't do this, right? So Natalie would never say homie G. She'd be like, look, buddy, right? <laughs> I, I'm totally kidding. Natalie actually hates the word buddy. And I said I might say that. She's like, don't say that. I would never say that, right? But okay, she would say, hey, yo, like we can't do this, right? And she did say that in a way because I was wrong, but she helped me uh, approach it in this beautiful way. Now, that's a silly example, right? But there was a great submissive heart there, okay? What about a more serious example, right? I'll be extreme just for extremity's sake, but like what if I, you know, said, hey, babe, man, this person in the church, they've been tripping, you know? And so in the middle of the gathering today, I want you to go outside and slash your tires, right? <laughs> Uh, I don't really know. No, no, no. Go slash their tires, okay? At that moment, should Natalie submit to me? Love setting people up for this. <laughs> the answer is yes. She should still submit to me. She should not go slash any tires. But submission does not equal obedience, friends. We have to get that out of our minds. She could still submit to me and yet be like, you are crazy, right? So it's funny because we just unpacked that submission is not obedience, but then our heart's proclivity is to say, no, she should not do that, right? Because in our minds, we think submission equals obedience. That's not what the scripture is laying out, friends. That's not what the scripture is laying out. She could still have this heart posture of submission and yet not obey whatsoever. Submission does not equal obedience, if you have to say that to yourself 10 times in your head, man, say it, because it'll make this passage make way more sense what it's actually laying out, right? And so in verse 22, it says, as unto the Lord. In verse 24, it says, in everything. In fact, if you see in this text, it doesn't say, hey, submit to your husband if he's a worthy husband. It never has any implication on the husband and his attitude whatsoever. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 would say, wives should submit to their husbands even if they're non-believers, because at that moment, they be begin to see the gospel played out in your submissive uh, heart posture, your attitude may actually literally convert that man into the faith as he sees the gospel played out in real life. And so this is nothing more than a tool. Listen to me, don't miss this. This is nothing more than a tool that you get to use to paint the reality of what your husband could become, what you see him working into in Jesus. You get to use the tool of submission to begin to help push him into what God is actually calling him into. You tracking with that? This is what submission is. It's not obedience. It's not be a doormat. It's not don't have a voice. It's not not say anything. It is a heart posture that sees what God is doing in a person and wants to help almost get behind them and push that reality into them in a gentle and a humble way. In fact, our Lord Jesus Christ himself submitted. He submitted to the Father. He submitted to the Spirit. And he even submitted in a way to you, though you were very unworthy and undeserving of it. Because as he became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and as he laid down his life because he was seeing what you could become, even though that was not the reality yet, Jesus laid down underneath us to push us into the reality of what we could become. This is more the understanding of what submission is. 
And so this is what God is calling you into in a lot of these ways. Now, ladies, listen to me, okay? If your husband, if your boyfriend, if he is abusive or something like that, leave that joker. Scripture is not setting you up for failure, ladies, right? And so, man, I know in a room this size, that may be the reality. Leave him and go tell somebody in your group or go come tell me, come tell somebody because that's not okay. This is not the understanding that scripture is laid out. I just said it's boyish men taking this word and making it mean something that it's not. And so you can actually still follow this and literally leave homeboy because you would still be able to do that in a lot of ways. Submission is a tool for which you could posture your heart in these beautiful ways to see what your husband could become in Christ and begin to encourage that into him. And so ladies, you're smart, okay? Don't give yourself to some joker of a man, right? Don't do that, okay? However, submission at the exact same time is the very tool that can be used that can change a broken, jacked up man like me and begin to make me more into Jesus as my wife uses that, seeing what I could become and honors that within me. So it's a delicate balance. I know. It's a very delicate balance. Paul doesn't skirt around that, but I think he tries to create these extremities to help us see the reality of what we're actually being called to in marriage. And so ladies, do you believe that? Do you believe that the death of yourself is what God is calling you into in marriage? Do you believe the gospel is what we're asking? That death to self and life to somebody else is what we're called into as believers because Jesus died for us that we may have life. So we will die for others that others may have life. Do we believe that in our households? In our marriages, this is a way by which we can lay aside our preferences and lay aside our priorities and seek the good of somebody else to elevate them to what God is calling them into. This is what submission looks like. It's not obedience. Okay? Men, you ready? Gird up your loins, all right? I always wanted to say that in a sermon, all right? So... Listen to me very clearly, man, okay? Scripture gives you a wildly hard task. Scripture, if you look at Ephesians 5, like 13 times, tells you to die, right? That's what it is saying over and over and over again. Die for your bride. Just like Christ died for the church, so you should die for your bride. If you go into marriage thinking it is about getting something, this text makes it painfully obvious obvious that that's not the reality, right? You die, you sacrifice, you lay down your life for your wife. Spiritually wash her with the word, it says. Do not be passive in y'all's spiritual journey together, but be active in it. Even to the extent of giving up your whole life, love your wives. Look, man, you get nothing out of this, it says, and you have everything to give. Just as the women doesn't say, hey, if he's worthy, submit to him. So man, it does not say, if your wife submits to you, then you lay down your life for her. That's not what it says. It says you lay down your life just like Christ did for the church. By the way, we were not very submissive to Jesus when, when he laid down his life for us. In fact, we were enemies, Romans 5, 8 would say. And yet, and still he laid down his life. And so it's not dependent on the woman. It's dependent on your heart position before God and before her to lay down your life for your wife. And so if you are married and and, and you uh, uh, are in that relationship, this is what God is calling you into. If you want to be married, then you need to begin to understand how that plays out even today right? If you're a single man, what does it look like to die, right? Maybe even what does it look like to die for Jesus's bride, the church, because you are married, just not physically here on earth. But if you're a believer, you will one day be wed forever with him. And so you can practice marriage even today and die for his bride still, the local church. And so this is what God is calling us into in a lot of ways. It calls men to sacrifice for their wives, it says, right? What does that word sacrifice mean? We'll use it in a sentence, right? 
I sacrificed a lamb. Does that mean I gave a little bit of the lamb? No, I gave that whole joker because it's dead, right? And so sacrifice means give all of yourselves. Husbands, die for your wife. Lay down all of what and who you are, your preferences, your desires. See the reality of what she could become in Christ and do whatever it takes to lay down your life to help her to get there. No amen from the ladies? Come on now, y'all are like, you listening, buddy, right? Okay, look, this is the reality of what God is calling us into. Sacrifice means death, means giving all of yourself. And so this is a hard thing, right? In other words, you do not get a get-out-of-hell marriage-free card just because there's a struggle in your marriage. Die still, men, right? This is what God is calling you into. For both of us, by the way, do we not think that God will meet us and sustain us if we are laying down our lives for the other person and that other person is not reciprocating it in return? I don't have time to go through all the scripture, but think about it. Think about Hagar or Leah or Abigail or Bathsheba or all these different people in scripture who was following the biblical mans, but their husbands or wives were not returning what God was calling them into. And so God stepped in and became a husband for them. God stepped in and provided where their earthly husbands were failing. If you are doing this, do you not think that God is going to step in and sustain and be the husband that your heart is longing for? Even if your earthly husband, your earthly wife is not actually playing this picture out. God is your sustainer. He is your fighter. He is here with you in the midst of this. He knows how hard this is, so he will meet you in the middle of the hardship of it. And so this is what we're being called into. God will be present. Beth Moore says that God desires order, and this is true. Husbands, you're supposed to be the leader of your household, the head of your wife, but let's redefine a second word here. Just like we've got to redefine submission, let's redefine what leadership is. What does biblical leadership look like? Well, Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 10. This will be on the screen too. You don't have to turn there. But just a couple of verses after, he says what it looks like to serve and to lay down for others. He says this. Jesus called them, the disciples, to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great one exercises authority over them. This is what we think leadership looks like. Lordship, authority, exercising, come follow me, do what I say. I'm the leader, I'm the CEO, I'm the more important one. I get paid more, but it should not be so amongst you. But whoever will be great among you must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Scripture says the leader is the one who, by very nature, serves the most. The leader is, by nature, the best servant. And so, husbands, you are called to lead your household. What does that mean? It means dying once again, laying down your life, being a servant, doing what it takes that other people may feel loved, exalted, your kids, your wife lifted up in ways that are beautiful. This is hard, but this is the gift that you can give to your spouse. As the wife can give honor and respect, something that your heart is looking for, you can give sacrifice and make her feel special and valued and loved. You can lay down your life that she may be lifted up, right? Now, I know what most men do, okay, at a point like this, right? They hear they're supposed to die, they're here supposed to lay down their life, and they turn everything into something epic, right? And so they think about, like, if somebody was about to shoot my wife, I would, like, jump in front and catch the bullet. And as I'm laying there dying, be like, I love you, babe, right? Okay? That's not what it's saying. If you do that, man, praise God, we'll have an awesome funeral for you, okay? But that's not what it's saying, right? 
We don't, Jesus was the epic one who saved the damsel in distress. He doesn't need you to do it, okay? What our death looks like is a thousand slow deaths over and over and over and over and over again. That's what it looks like. So let's erase the epicness and put it into a more realistic picture, right? Now, here's what happened. When I first uh, was preaching on this text, literally, I'm not joking, I literally used the, the sentence that says you've got to die, and I put you need to die, die, die. And then I put a period at the end of the sentence. And as I put a period, my phone starts ringing. It's my wife. So I pick it up, you know, hey, what's up, babe? You know, she's like, hey, I need you to come home, like, right away. I was like, oh, man, I'm, like, right in the middle of the sermon. I'm in this, like, groove, you know, like, man, you know. She was like, I literally need you to come home. And I was like, why, what's up? And I don't know if you know this, but uh, termites, they build these little colonies, okay, and every once in a while, the colony kind of like burst open. And when it burst open, it looks like, you know, how the, the bats come out from under the Congress Bridge and it's just a black cloud of smoke. That's what it looks like, okay? Except literally it burst right by our house, found this little crevice to come into our house, and it was a black cloud of smoke in our house of termites, all right? And so she was like, the kids are screaming, right? I'm like, there's stuff under the doors. I don't know what to do. I've been like vacuuming up these bugs. I've been vacuuming the bugs and have to empty all of these bugs and go back and vacuum because there's so many bugs. I need you to come home, right? Now, how many of y'all at that moment think I hung up the phone and I was like, praise the Lamb of God. I get to love my wife and serve her. Thank you, Jesus, for letting the sermon illustration be. How many of you think I did that, right? You think too highly of me, buddy, right? No, not at all. That's not what happened, right? Like literally, I heard the phone and I was like, I can't believe this. And I started getting mad at the situation and was probably cussing in my head, not at my wife at the situation, and at my wife probably a little bit, right? But I had to go home, right, and, and vacuum up this floor. But I know the reality that, man, this is what will help Natalie feel loved. Helping somebody feel loved means laying down your life and vacuuming the insect-infested floor 1,000 times over. None of y'all are like, wow, Tori's such an awesome husband, right? I don't get accolades, I don't get rewards. I'm supposed to do that, you think. But this is what death looks like sometimes. I didn't want to do that. There was no part of me that was like, yes, I get to serve my wife, right? But I had to lay down my own preferences, my own desires at that moment, right? She knew how busy I was. She wasn't trying to be like an inconvenience for me or just get under my skin. She didn't make the plague come into our house. The Lord did, so I can use it as a sermon illustration, right? <laughs> and so this is what dying looks like. Men, die for your brides, right? This is the command. This is the gift that you can give. This is what we are supposed to do to help others feel valuable. This is hard, I know. And we are sinful. I know that. And so in our sin, we end up hurting people. And we don't die. We don't submit. We don't honor. We don't respect. We don't love. We don't sacrifice. We don't do these things. I know the reality of this is hard. But Paul is saying, if you understand the gospel, this is how it begins to play out in everyday situations. Tony Evans, who's a pastor up in Dallas, he says this, marriage is an ongoing, vivid illustration of what it costs to love an imperfect person unconditionally the same way Christ has loved us. But I promise, friends, that when you begin to do this, you will begin to come to life. God meets you here in your sacrifice, in your death. It is better to give than it is to receive. Do you believe it, friends? Do you believe it? Do you believe the gospel? You, men and women, were made to be like God, and God is a sacrificial, submissive, loving God that lays down his life. Are you willing to look like God and to do that in your most intimate relationships, that of marriage, your household, your church, your friends, even your own life? Do you believe this? This is what Paul is calling us into. 
And so even if you're single, you can see the reality of this here, that marriage is not about you, right? It's not about us. It's about something so much more. In fact, Tim Keller, once again, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is a great, great book on this, he says this, there's an illusion that if we find our one true soulmate, everything wrong with us will be healed. But that makes the lover into God and no human being can live up to that. See, when you place the burden of Messiah and Savior on one another's shoulders, when you say, I need you to satisfy my heart's longing and desire, you are placing upon somebody something that no human shoulder can bear. For nobody can give your heart what it was actually made for. Nobody can satisfy the cravings in your heart. There was one man that ever walked on the face of this earth that had the ability to do that, and his name was Jesus, not Tori or Josh or Paul or any other man or woman in this world. Jesus is the one who can bear that. But when you place the burden of Messiah on somebody else, you will crush your spouse. And when you make marriage about what you can get, that's what you're doing. You are placing the burden of Messiah upon somebody else. But when you say marriage is what I can give as I lay down myself, then what you're doing is you are inevitably pointing them to the one who can satisfy Jesus, our true and better husband anyway. And so then within all this, right, why does our heart then long for the ideal? I mean, even as I'm saying this, like we're not going to go home and just utterly change our lives today, right? Why our heart longs for the ideal. Why is that happening? Because your heart was indeed, friends, made for the ideal spouse. You were indeed created and designed by God himself to long for the ideal because he longs to give it to you in himself. Jesus says over and over and over again, God says throughout the scriptures and Revelation and Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and all throughout the text, it says that God is our husband is a word that it uses. God wants to step in and fill this desire in your heart that no earthly husband or wife can satisfy because he can come in and be the true and better husband for us. This is why we long for the ideal. If you're single, why does it feel like sometimes I have to get a spouse? I, I need to get a spouse. If you're married, why are you always so disappointed when your wife fails you or your husband fails you, even though you know, even though you know that they are human, they're broken? Why? Because your heart was made for something more. Marriage stimulates your heart's longing for the ideal, friends. It begins to brushstroke and paint a picture of what reality should be in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, Christ, in a way, fulfilled this text for us perfectly. Christ was submissive, as we talked about already. Christ was sacrificial, and he was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so therefore, Jesus is our perfect example of what it looks like to have a true, beautiful marriage bond. But you might say, well, gosh, like, how do I do that, though, right? Maybe you're convicted. Maybe you're like, I don't submit whatsoever. I don't even care about that. I don't even want to hear this sermon right now, all right? Or maybe you're not sacrificial. Maybe you make all these excuses as to why you can't lead spiritually or, or why you can't lay down your life. Or maybe you're single and you know that you are putting this unbelievable pressure on your future spouse who you don't even know yet, but this longing to be married is eating away at you and you know that you don't live in light of the reality that you are already married to our true husband, Jesus, yet you long for the ideal Maybe you feel the brokenness and sinfulness of your own heart, even within the compounds of marriage or the longing to be married. And I would tell you that that's where Jesus isn't just our perfect example, but he's also our forgiveness where we fail, friends. 
See, Jesus was perfect in all of these examples. Jesus was the one that was, as we said, truly submissive. Jesus was the one that had his beard pulled out and spit on his face and thorns in his, in his, in his skull. And as he went up naked on the cross and began to pay the penalty for your sin, as he drank the very wrath of God, he was the sacrificial husband who will do whatever it takes to make you his bride into a beautiful, spotless bride presented to him on that great day. He is the great and true husband. And so as you fail, as you say, I don't know how to live this out in reality, what we are called to do in the scriptures is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the true and better one. He's the one that can help us see the reality of this. And when you mess up and are jacked up and are broken, you can seek his forgiveness. Because he lived this to perfection, knowing that you could not, he takes on your brokenness and gives you his righteousness. And over and over and over again, your singleness or your marriage can be restored. And so the reality of what God longs for it to be as you surrender your life to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why the gospel is so important. This is why us believing chapters one through three is vital. Do you believe this? Marriage is not about you. It's about what you can give to somebody else. It is better though, friends, to give than it is to receive. And if we live in light of that reality, then we will be a happy people more importantly, we'll be a blessed people, blessed by God as we are redeeming our singleness rather than longing for something, realizing that we already have it and until God maybe provides it here on earth, we can serve his bride in beautiful ways and live out marriage even amongst our church families that we are in. If you are married, you can begin to live out the realities of this now. This is what God is calling us into, friends. Do you believe it? Do you believe the gospel? Marriage will test our faith. It will test our understanding if we truly believe this. But I believe that if we live like this, for the sake of others rather than for the sake of ourselves, then you will come alive in ways that your heart has never experienced before. Seek to die. Seek to die. In your death is your life. And that's what this scripture is promising, even in marriage. I love you guys like crazy. Let's pray. Ma'am, God, thank you. I thank you that you reorient the Hollywood version of love and you give us something so much more beautiful. I thank you, God, for how you have redeemed my marriage. Have you allowed the, the death of me to be the life for my wife and for me? Have you have allowed the death of her to be life for me and for her? I thank you for that reality, God. Lord, I pray that we would be a people whose marriages are blessed. God, for those of us who are married, would you please protect our marriage, God? Would you protect it from the enemy? Shoot, would you protect it from us, ourselves, our own flesh? God, would you help us to think about the needs, the wants, the desires of somebody else before our own? God, this is hard. It is scary to love in that way as a wild, scary, totally different love than we're used to. But I pray that we will be a church that begins to look like that. God, for those who are single, would they see the redemption, the beauty of what you are doing even in, uh, in their singleness, God? Would you show them that they are not single? If they believe in you, then they are already married. They are engaged to their true and better husband to be wed together to you forever for that great day. Would they believe in that right now? 
God, would you redeem these years that the world may say there's less or their own flesh may say, oh, there's more. God, would you show them you have already given them everything they need and desire. Would you redeem it? God, would you help the men in this room to die, to lay down their life? Help me, God, lay down my life. Would you help the women to respect, to honor, to elevate, to promote, to try to push up their husband as the whole world tries to push that man down? God, would you give us that opportunity to do that fine, that hard balance of what that looks like? Help us, God. We need you. Lord, I pray for those in here who may not know you. Friends, right now, you can have a relationship with the God of the universe. God does not just want to be your God or your Lord or your King or your Master. All those things are true. But he also wants to be your friend, your lover, your husband. You can experience the intimacy that your heart was craving. It is found in our Savior, Jesus. And so right now, you can enter into a relationship with him. He's already proposed to you. His proposal was his hand stretched out on the cross as he laid down his life for you. You just have to say, yes, I do. I want you. And by faith, friends, you can have a relationship with the God of the universe. God, would you make us to be a people that model this well? Would you forgive us where we fail, where we are broken, where we are messed up? Would you elevate the reality of who you are in us? We love you, Jesus. I pray this in your precious and your beautiful and your awesome and your sacrificial name. Amen.